I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. On this episode of Newt's World, Gallup has been asking the world's citizens the question, how's your life going since 2006? And some concerning trends are starting to emerge. People are reporting more stress, more sadness, more physical pain, more worry, and more anger than at any other point in the history of the Gallup's world poll tracking. Here to talk about these emerging trends, I'm really pleased to welcome my guest and my good friend, who I've worked with for many years, John Clifton, the CEO of Gallup. His new book, Blind Spot, The Rise of Global Unhappiness and How Leaders Missed It, is out now, and frankly, I wish leaders would read it because they are missing it. John, welcome and thank you for joining me on Newt's World. Mr. Speaker, thank you for having me. I thought we'd start with your own background with Gallup. You took over the role of CEO from your father, Jim Clifton, who you know I worked with for many years. In June of 2022, you have a deep history of working in the company which was founded originally by George Gallup as the American Institute of Public Opinion in 1935. He was a tremendous pioneer and worked very closely, especially with General Motors and with Alfred Sloan, in developing what we think of today as polling. And it's an amazing organization, probably has the largest, by huge margin, system of data on public opinion of any company in the entire world. Today, you employ more than 2,000 professionals in 30 offices around the world, providing analytics and advice to help leaders and organizations solve many of their most pressing problems. You've been with Gallup since 2008. 
You served as the firm's global managing partner for five years, advising global leaders on how their organizations and countries can thrive using analytics-based insights. You got your bachelor's degree in political science and history from the University of Michigan and a doctorate in international law from the University of Nebraska. You were awarded an honorary degree in humane letters from Midland University. And let me just say that your dad was the firm's CEO since 1988, and now he is the chairman of the board, but you're now really running the system. You just published Blind Spot, The Rise of Global Unhappiness and How Leaders Missed It. What inspired you to write the book? So for 15 years, we have been tracking something very different than what leaders are used to. So leaders often follow traditional economic indicators like unemployment. They track GDP per capita, but they rarely track how people feel. And we believe that's a massive problem. So we started asking people 15 years ago in over 140 countries every single year, do you experience a lot of stress in your life? Do you have a lot of sadness in your life? How about anger, physical pain or worry? And in about our first five to six years of tracking, we found that there wasn't much of a change. And we kind of confirmed conventional wisdom. So countries in the Middle East expressed the most negative emotions, places like Iraq, places like Afghanistan. But over the past 10 years, we've seen a massive increase in all these indicators. And what inspired us to do this book now is because when we first warned the world about the global rise of unhappiness, we did so in 2020. And when we told people that there's been rising stress, sadness, physical pain, worry, et cetera, a lot of leaders and a lot of the media came back to us and they said, well, gee, Gallup, why is that a surprise? I mean, all of us are collectively suffering from a global pandemic. So why is it a surprise that there's more misery in the world today? And our re response to them was, well, if you think it's just COVID, then you haven't been paying attention because this rise of unhappiness has been coming for a decade. And that's what's got us really concerned and why we felt the need to put a book out on it. You all had made the decision to have a 100-year initiative spanning over 150 countries. I mean, no place else has ever institutionally done anything on the scale of Gallup. And you've been asking, how is your life going since 2006? You interview people in over 150 countries every year to ask them how their lives are going. And you partner with the Sustainable Development Solutions Network, which is an initiative of the United Nations to produce the World Happiness Report. These are really wildly different countries. How do you actually get the information? So in these countries where we conduct interviews, and as you mentioned, we do about 140 to 150 countries every single year, and about 40 to 50 of them, we do phone interviews. We call people either on a landline phone or on a mobile phone. But for the other 100, we do face-to-face -face interviewing. That means that we have people that are effectively walking the planet, not just doing capital cities only, asking people in the most far off places, tell us about how your life is going. And that also requires us to translate everything into virtually every language in the world. If 5% of people in one particular country speak a certain language or dialect, we make this interview available so that they can report to us how their lives are going. So you actually have Kenyans interviewing Kenyans, Brazilians interviewing Brazilians. In some countries where they have very strict rules like Saudi Arabia, it must require real creativity to find the right, for example, women who interview women, because in Saudi Arabia, you could never have a man interview a woman. That's exactly right. And so when we conducted our last survey in Afghanistan, it was face to face. This was exactly the time when the American forces were leaving the country. And the Taliban allowed us to ask 
how people's lives are going. Women were interviewing women. Men were interviewing men. And we found something that's probably not a massive surprise to people, which is that anger, stress, sadness, physical pain, and worry reached not just a record high in Afghanistan over that period of time. It was the highest amount of those negative emotions we have ever seen for any country in the history of our database. So you're absolutely right. We do need coordination oftentimes with the government. You know, we ask questions like corruption. We ask questions like approval ratings of leaders. And some countries say to us, that's not culturally acceptable. So you can see there are about 30 countries in the world where we don't ask about job approval ratings like we do here in the United States for every president dating back to the 1930s. So there are some countries will be very dangerous and people probably wouldn't give you an honest answer because they know they could get killed if they were too honest. Well, that depends. So you are correct about some countries being too dangerous. And the safety of our interviewers is one of the things that's most important to us. So we have not been back to the Central African Republic or the Democratic Republic of Congo since 2017, because right now, in order for people to go door to door, it's just not safe enough for them. We've never been to North Korea. The very idea that Kim Jong-un would be okay with us asking about how people's lives are going almost sounds like a bad joke, but it's also a reality. But the other thing is that while people may not always tell the truth about how they feel about the leadership of their country, what they are always honest about is how their lives are going. So when you ask people, rate your life on a scale of zero to 10, 10 is the best imaginable life and zero is the worst imaginable life. Where do you stand today? The people who say that they have the best lives in the world are not in places like the Palestinian territories or Haiti. The place where they say that are in places like Denmark and Finland. And when you go to places like the Democratic Republic of Congo, Haiti, and the Palestinian territories, what is said back to us is people think their lives are a two or a three. So you do find correlating this to external information like GDP per capita, you find that we are confirming what you'd think you'd know, that places where people are struggling, they know they're struggling. And people who have it well know they have it well. You guys asked some very clever questions. I mean, one of them was, were you treated with respect all day yesterday? 86% of people responded yes. That's an amazingly high number to me. That is a huge surprise for me as well. I was lucky enough to conduct some of the qualitative interviews. And one of them, I did that in Mongolia in 2019 in Ulaanbaatar. And I interviewed a woman in a yurt and we asked her that question, did you feel treated with respect all day yesterday? And while I had never met this woman previously, the woman that I was sitting there with felt like somebody I'd known my whole life. Because when we asked her that question, she laughed and she said back to us, of course I did. And I think what she was conveying is that nobody disrespects me. And there are a lot of people globally that feel that they've been treated with respect all day by everyone in their community and at work. The other one, which I find fascinating, and I want to ask a couple of questions about it, is that 73% of the people responded yes to the question, did you smile and laugh a lot yesterday? Does that distribute so that there are some countries where you get really high numbers and some countries where you get relatively low numbers about smiling and laughing? Without question. So there are two constructs that you have to measure in terms of a great life. One is how people see their life. The other way is how they live their life. When we ask people in terms of seeing their life, it taps more into their remembering mind. So it's a reflection of everything that's been happening in their life. And when you look at the rankings of that, that's typically Denmark at the top, Denmark and Finland, where it's Haiti and the Palestinian territories at the bottom. The other aspect is how do you live life every day? How much stress do you have? How much do you laugh and smile? If you look at the results of that index, the people who know how to have the most fun in the world, without question, are Latin Americans. 
So even in some of the countries where GDP per capita is among the bottom quartile, take the Dominican Republic, for some reason, the people in that particular country say that they laugh and smile a lot and experience a lot of enjoyment. So there's something culturally that's happening in Latin America that the world has a lot to learn from in terms of having fun. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com news. That's LifeLock.com news to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. Hi, this is Newt. We have serious decisions to make about the future of our country. Americans must confront big government socialism, which has taken over the modern Democratic Party, big business, news media, entertainment, and academia. My new best-selling book, Defeating Big Government Socialism, Saving America's Future, offers strategies and insights for everyday citizens to save America's future and ensure it remains the greatest nation on earth. Here's a special offer for my podcast listeners. You can order an autographed copy of my new book, Defeating Big Government Socialism, right now at Gingrich360.com book, and we'll ship it directly to you. Don't miss out on this special offer. It's only available for a limited time.
Go to Gingrich360.com slash book to order your copy now. Order it today at Gingrich360.com slash book. What would you say is the difference between being happy in Denmark and Finland and being happy, say, in Brazil or Colombia? Well, I think one of the challenges is the misuse of the word happy. So when we talk about people rating their lives, and that is what the SDSN uses for the world's happiest countries, they're probably measuring contentment, not happiness. If you want to measure happiness, it's probably closer to asking people if they laugh and smile a lot or if they experience enjoyment. So the real happiest countries in the world are probably Latin America, not the Nordic countries, which are probably the most content in the world. So again, exactly what it is that we're measuring, it's so important for people to kind of pull back and look at the actual information. I'm affected to some extent by my wife being from Wisconsin, where there are huge differences between Scandinavians and Germans, for example. So you could say that the Nordics are content, but it would be inappropriate for them to laugh too much. I wouldn't go necessarily that far because we have seen some years where Denmark, for example, is also one of the highest countries in the world with respect to laughing and smiling a lot. So there is a lot that the world can learn from Denmark, not just in terms of contentment, but also from laughing and smiling. I'll say one other thing, Mr. Speaker, which is, you know, when the World Happiness Report comes out every single year, and again, they're using this rate your life on a scale of zero to 10, and it says we're crowning that, you know, or effectively, they're crowning the world's happiest countries. And when Finland was that particular country one year, they interviewed people on the street and they said, you know, Finland was named the happiest country in the world. What do you think? And a lot of people on the streets in Finland said, well, I don't feel happy. One minister actually said, if we're the happiest country in the world, I feel bad for all the other countries. And again, I think that's because of the labeling of happiness. What we're capturing there has a lot more to do with contentment than it does the actual sort of fleeting, ephemeral emotion of happiness. It's funny you raise that because, as you know, the prime minister of Finland right now is a very attractive young woman. And there was a little mini scandal because she was out dancing and what have you. And part of her comeback was, look, we're the happiest country in the world. And one of my jobs as prime minister is to keep us all happy. What are you complaining about? So they were coming straight off the Gallup data in her explanation of that she was happy and she wanted everyone in Finland to be happy. But I agree with you, there tends to be a stoic quality that is very, very different from the Dominican Republic. I would have thought almost any of the Caribbean islands, not just the Latin islands, but that could have been just from my having been a tourist. That may not be accurate for, say, a Jamaica or Barbados, which are not Latin in culture. You do get into more difficult things when these almost a third of the people experienced physical pain the previous day. That, to me, was a surprisingly high number. And it's very concerning because the work that Professor Ann Case and Nobel laureate Angus Deaton have done here in the United States on deaths of despair, and of course, deaths of despair is a term that captures suicides, opioid overdoses, and also 
deaths because of alcohol poisoning. We're seeing, I think it's now 75,000 people a year that are now dying because of those three things combined. Now, when Ann Case and Angus Deaton looked at Gallup's data, we had that particular item on physical pain all the way down to the U.S. congressional district level. And what they found is that that has a huge correlation. So this idea about not just physical pain, but also how do we emotionally deal with this physical pain, the consequences can be extremely deadly. And so the trend that we had seen in the United States that was increasing, it's now increasing for the entire world. And so we're very concerned about what that looks like. And I'll say one other thing, Mr. Speaker, because I think one of the things that people ultimately turn to is, well, is the rise in pain, does it have something to do with the fact that globally we have an aging population? It is a fact that globally we have an aging population, but when we cut the data by age, we find that there's a rise in pain among all age groups. So this is not just because the world is getting a little bit older. I think that's a very important distinction that I worry because it seems to me we've had a remarkable increase in teenage suicides and in young people who are overdosing on drugs. And in a sense, the dysfunctionality, if anything, has been in people between 14 and 30 more than between, say, 60 and 70. And I find that very worrisome for the future of the whole culture. And I think that something, speaking of politically here in the United States, that has received bipartisan support is to tackle this issue of mental health and suicides. And, you know, suicides have been growing here in the United States for, I think, almost two decades, according to the CDC. But this new initiative on the hotline on 988 so that people have someone to call when they're in a lot of trouble is a great development, especially because the hotlines that existed before, one out of six phone calls to those hotlines went totally unanswered. And it's really uh, hard to imagine, but how much somebody would struggle that they want to talk to somebody will wait up to two minutes before they'll hang up and one out of six go totally unanswered. So I think this initiative nationally around 988 is really a positive development for the United States. You do make a point that there's a huge difference between the 20% of people who report that they have a great life and the 20% who rate their lives as the worst. What are the real differences between these two groups? Well, let me start by saying, just kind of articulating what that data point says, because there's a data point that's even worse. 15 years ago, we asked people, rate your life. 10 is the best imaginable, zero is the worst. We found that about 3.5% said, my life's a perfect 10. And we found that about 1.7% said, my life is the worst imaginable. It can't get worse. Over 15 years of tracking, we found that the people who said their lives are at 10 has now more than doubled. Almost 8% say, I have a perfect life. And we also found that people who said, my life is a perfect zero, it can't get worse, has more than quadrupled to almost 8%. So in terms of how people are seeing their lives is pulling apart. We isolated the 20% who rate their lives the best and the 20% who rate their lives the worst. And you can see this new concept of well-being inequality and how these two groups are pulling apart. So when we look to see what do they have in common, the people who rate their lives the worst and the people who rate their lives the best, it's ultimately five things. It's their job, it's their social interactions, it's their community, their financial well-being, and their physical well-being. And I think physical well-being is really important here because a lot of times in the United States or in rich countries, we see that in physical well-being, we have an obesity epidemic. But that's because we have sort of a myopic view on this topic, because for so many other countries, there is a hunger crisis. The world has been winning the war against hunger for four decades. In 2014, it switched. Gallup and the FAO found that 
20% of people globally were either moderately or severely food insecure. That trend has risen annually and is now 30% for the entire world. So we have a serious hunger crisis and that ultimately causes a lot of pain and for people to see their lives worse. So we actually, and of course this is being exacerbated now by the breakup in the agricultural flow from Ukraine and Russia, the droughts in the U.S. and in Brazil. So this fall, we're likely to have a very significant increase in the number of people who are literally either starving or close to starving. Without question. The war in Ukraine has absolutely exacerbated this already existing problem. But I think what's so important to emphasize here is that many people think that the hunger crisis was caused by COVID or that it was caused by the war in Ukraine. And that's the challenge is that many of these trends that we're seeing existed long before these massive problems. And these problems are exacerbating these already existing problems. It's not causing them. If you could give people advice and you wanted them to learn how to be in the top 20%, what would you tell them? So I would say two things. The first one, and this is where the private sector has a massive responsibility to solve the world's problems, and that's right there in workplaces. If you count the amount of hours that a human being works in their life, on the high end, one study I saw was 115,000 hours of a lifetime is spent working. If you isolate that in years, it's more than 13 years, meaning the only thing you do more in life is sleep. I replicated a similar analysis using life expectancy data and also Gallup's data on how many hours do people actually work. I think it's 50 hours per week in countries like Mongolia. And what I found is that on the low end, it's 85,000, which is nine years of your life. If you are miserable at work, it makes you miserable in life. And when you look to see what workplace misery looks like, if you have a job where you don't have the ability to do what you do best, if you hate your colleagues, and if you have a manager that drives you nuts, the daily pain that you experience, and again, this is now a statistical fact, your daily experience is either identical or slightly worse than someone who is completely unemployed. This is the kind of pain that is caused by bad workplaces. And if we could get the people that are thriving at work, today we find that it's 20% of the world thrive in their current jobs. It doesn't mean they have a total absence of stress or sadness or physical pain. They do because work, by definition, is exerting some sort of physical or mental energy in order to accomplish something. But the job that you have, the soul of it, cannot be stress, anger, sadness, and pain. I'll just make one last point. Is every single time we as humans, we try and create solutions to get away from work instead of improving work. Take, for example, four-day work weeks. Take, for example, work-life balance. The very idea of work-life balance assumes that we can compartmentalize what happened at work and what happens after work. And the reality is you can't. If your boss berated you at noon, it's really hard to forget about that. So we went and asked people around the world from Germany to the U.S., did the stress of work cause you to behave badly with friends and loved ones in the past 30 days? Far more of a majority of people everywhere said yes. So bad workplaces are not only causing misery to individuals, it's also causing misery to people's friends and family. And private sector workers ultimately need to address that. When you look at that, and would you say to people, look, if you really feel bad about your job, go get another one. Don't cling to it. Not necessarily, because one of the challenges is, is if you take a country like the United States, you have a third of people that are engaged in their jobs. So that means 70% aren't. And a lot of times you just make a move from one miserable work environment to the next. Now, I think the disconnect here has to do with business philosophy. There are a lot of 
Friedmanites, the shareholder capitalists that kind of hear these concepts and think these are too fuzzy. I don't want to hear about this kind of stuff. All I care about is driving profit and driving share price. The reality is, is that creating a thriving workplace actually is agnostic to all business philosophies and will also help drive the bottom line. Why? Because human beings are emotional. If human beings have more of an attachment to their work, they're actually far more productive. They actually look out for each other. There's less safety incidents and they also are less likely to leave. In fact, you can offer them all the way up to a 20% pay increase and they won't leave if they love their colleagues and they love their job. So this agenda about creating thriving workplaces is something that really plays to anyone, whether or not you're a shareholder, a stakeholder capitalist, or for that matter, a state capitalist, which sometimes feels like an oxymoron to me, but I guess there are those out there that are state capitalists. But again, a thriving workplace drives ultimately everyone's agenda and makes it better for the people that work there. You create what you call a U-curve of happiness, showing that young people rate their lives high, older people rate their lives high, but middle-aged people rate their lives the lowest. Why do you think that is? Well, you know, I think there are a lot of critics about well-being research or just research in general. And they say, look, Gallup, thanks for all this work, but you've confirmed the obvious. Basically, you've shown us that a midlife crisis is a real thing. Maybe that is something that's true, that young people feel a lot better about life. And, you know, as you get toward the end, you feel a lot better. I don't think that's the case. And I think the way to flatten that curve ultimately has to do with two things. Number one, workplaces. Workplaces make us miserable, and it's true in every single country in the world. And the second thing is, is getting help with childcare, ultimately. The more children you have, and Arthur Brooks, you know him very well, and he's written about this at Harvard, but the more kids you have, the more stress, the more sadness, the more physical pain that you have. And it doesn't mean don't have children. Children are a fundamental part of life, and they make life great, but they also make life difficult. And sometimes it causes people to reflect on life a little bit in a more difficult way. But the reality is, is that when those kids get older and you're reflecting on life when you are in your 70s or 80s, you do so in a much better way. And you say, I'm thankful that I did go through those experiences because your remembering mind is far different than your experiencing mind. And sometimes you have to go through tough things, like working through a job that you love can be hard. Raising children can be hard, but your remembering mind later in life says, I'm glad I did those things and I'm better off for it. That's a fascinating distinction between experiencing and remembering. Now, you do ask the question, does money buy happiness? What is the world poll answer to that? It's a great question. And I don't know that we have totally answered the question, but we're close. And our answer is money does not buy happiness, but it is hard to be happy without it. And it also is, what is happiness? Because if you believe happiness is this idea of contentment about rating your life on a scale of zero to 10, then the more money you make, the higher you will rate your life. And Justin Wolfers and Betsy Stevenson replicated this analysis globally, and they find that there is no satiation point in terms of how much money that you make. But when you're talking about stress and sadness and about laughing and smiling a lot, it does appear that there is a satiation point. And after your basic needs are met, after that, it's very hard for money to actually buy you more laughter or less anger or sadness. So the trick is to have at least enough. That's right. It's to at least have enough. And the other thing is, if you want a silver bullet to have more fun, it really comes down to great relationships with your friends and family. 
a lot of times people knock Thanksgiving because they say this is, you know, going to be a miserable time <laughs> and they, you know, are going to spend it with friends and family. It's not true. I mean, the research is overwhelming that the more time that you spend with friends and family, the more positive emotions that you experience. And it's almost to the point where it doesn't satiate in terms of how many hours you spend with friends and family in terms of the impact it makes on your positive emotions. One of the things you found that did surprise me is that while the COVID-19 experience was bad, the actual increase in Gallup's negative experience index was mostly between 2007 and 2014 and not COVID itself. That's correct. So if you look at this increase that's taken place in terms of anger, stress, sadness, physical pain, and worry, 80% of the rise took place before COVID. And the rise has been happening almost perfectly around the entire world. So if you look at the trend in China, it's been increasing dramatically. If you look at the trend in India, it's been increasing dramatically. If you look at it in Mexico, if you look at it in Colombia, Venezuela is probably not a surprise to anyone. If you look at it in Argentina or Brazil, all of it is going up. It is almost exactly the same rate. And this is why we're so concerned about it, why we thought it was time to come out with a book on it. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. What do you recommend to global leaders if they accept your analysis and accept your data, which is the most comprehensive in the world? What would they do? 
Well, I think the first thing is, is they need to be following these particular metrics. I mean, if you give a pop quiz to some of the world's top leaders and ask them about their stock market, unemployment, or even GDP of the particular country, I think they'd all ace it. But if you ask them about how people feel in their countries, I think a lot of them don't know, or they just sort of speak from personal reflection on the conversations they have. And that's not necessarily a reflection of the entire country. So the first thing is, I think they should take the measurement of this more seriously, asking people about their stress, sadness, and anger. You can also see this plainly evident in the UN's sustainable development goals. There are no measures of subjective well-being. I think that's a challenge. The second thing, though, is that there are a lot of world leaders, take 80 of them, for example. 80 countries not only do not have a statistics plan, if they do have a plan, it's not even funded. So basic data aren't being collected in many countries globally, and they're not even getting basic data on births and deaths. There's something that's kind of unfortunate, but in North Macedonia, the head of the statistics two to three years ago was asked, how many people live in this country? He said, because the official statistics, I think, was 1.5 million. He said it's 1.8, but I can't prove it. And it's because the country hadn't done a census in 20 years. So very basic data is needed. And in terms of how people feel, these countries need this as well. The next thing is, is we need to have a better understanding about the subjective aspects of life. So it's no longer an understatement to say that loneliness is killing people. It is. And right now we find globally that there are 300 million adults that don't have a single friend in their life that they even talk to. And we know that 20% of adults globally don't have a single friend or family member that they can count on in times of need. There was a academic out of BYU and she did a meta-analysis on loneliness. And she found that those that are lonely have a 50% increase in chance of dying if they don't have anyone that's looking out for them. And so I think some of these governments that are trying to take it seriously, and honestly, I think some people are laughing at them, but I think it's the right direction, which is Japan and the UK have opened up ministries of loneliness because as we've known, in Japan, there's a massive challenge with suicide, but that government has figured something out because suicides have dropped dramatically in Japan. So I think a lot of these initiatives that governments are doing, like here in the United States with 988 in terms of a suicide hotline, I think is the direction that'll really help people who are really struggling right now. I think you really have such a rich database and and such an extraordinary system. Are you remaining committed to going out worldwide again and again? We'll never stop. I say that because even during COVID, when we were not able to conduct interviews face-to-face, we figured out a way to continue to collect data. We wanted to make sure that our interviewers were safe, but we also wanted to make sure that people had the opportunity to have their voices heard in one of the most important times possible. The first time we'd really experienced this was in 2014 in Liberia. Liberia was, of course, experiencing an Ebola outbreak, and conducting face-to-face interviews is impossible because you don't want the interviewers or the people within homes to contract Ebola. And so somebody said, well, of course, you know that in Liberia, the language that's spoken there is English. And so although it's not ideal from a data collection perspective, we had interviewers in Omaha, Nebraska, call into Liberia to ask about the economic conditions, to ask about their own personal experiences. And the stories were incredible. We had people saying, I would rather experience war than I would Ebola. We had people saying, will you please just stay on the phone with me? I haven't had someone to talk to in days. But we were able to get information to the World Bank and to the Liberian government, even when they had none available. So this is Gallup's mission, and we're never going to stop doing it. In addition to getting your book, can people go to a Gallup website and learn a lot? 
Absolutely. So if people go to gallup.com, they can find all this information. We're constantly writing articles. So for example, in the UK, we know that inflation was the highest in all rich countries. And so we're reporting on how do people feel about it? How do they feel about their personal economic situation? And for those that don't have time to go through every single article and read every single word, we actually came up with a Week in Charts newsletter so that we take the five most interesting charts from the voice of the people in America, the voice of the people from all around the world to say, here are the things that you need to know from what people are thinking and feeling now. So I'd highly recommend that anyone that's interested, it's free, that they can sign up to it because we put a lot of work into it and we want leaders to know what's on the minds of people everywhere. John, I want to thank you for joining me. Every time I've worked with Gallup, I've been amazed at the professionalism, the level of intelligence, the quality of the people you recruit, and the sheer institutional dedication you have. Your new book, Blind Spot, The Rise of Global Unhappiness and How Leaders Missed It, I think is essential reading for those in leadership roles who are trying to understand better what is happening in our society and, more importantly, what they can do as leaders to address some of the issues people are facing. We're going to have it listed on our show page and encourage people to get it. And I want to thank you for joining me on Newt's World and sharing this information with us. Mr. Speaker, thank you for having an interest in what we do and for having an interest in the voice of people in every country in the world. Thank you to my guest, John Clifton. You can get a link to buy his new book, Blind Spot, The Rise of Global Unhappiness and How Leaders Missed It, on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newt's World is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Garnsey Sloan. Our producer is Rebecca Howell, and our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at gingrich360.com slash newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. 
Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. You've probably heard a lot about electrified vehicles lately. Well, Toyota has electrified options for every lifestyle. We've got hybrids, no plug needed. But we also have plug-in hybrids, if that's your thing. (laughs) You can even go 100% electric in the Toyota BZ4X. With so many options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified, diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. 